Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. Welcome to The Way of Product Design. I'm your host, Caden Damiano. This podcast has one mission, help product designers generate massive value for their clients, their companies, and themselves so they can do the work they enjoy the most. We know design is valuable, but how can you unlock the true value design in your work? To help with this, I interview top performers in design, product management, and engineering so you can understand what's valuable to your stakeholders, your bosses, and your customers. So enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Hey listeners, I am talking with a polymath. We just met, but just based off our early conversation before recording, he does a lot. And not only is he uh, kind of this uh, design, engineering, marketing thinker, he's also uh, an author. So we're going to dig into that. Today's my guest is Ian Peterman, and he is the CEO of Peterman Firm, which in his words, the best way to describe it is a commercial partner right commercialization partner i like the way it went from what i understand and i'll let you make your own judgments it sounds like an accelerator of, of products from idea concept all the way to a supply chain so they they work on physical products digital products internet of things which is a, is, a, is a hybrid of the two which i'm always very interested in this guest is really cool um really excited to have you on the show so thanks for coming on ian yeah, thanks for having me. Good, good to be here. 
And uh, yeah, to, to kind of expand the, my design firm, we, we are that partner all the way from the early stage of got a napkin sketch, have an idea. And if you're serious about turning it into a business and commercializing that product, we walk right next to you all the way through to once you're in production, your supply chain, you have branding, you have e-commerce website, if that's what you want to do and you have a functioning business selling the product that you wanted to have launched. So Ian, can you briefly introduce yourself to the listener? We, we, we got the crazy Da Vinci-esque aspect of your persona. I want to, I want to know, and I usually don't give guide guidelines for this uh, part of the podcast, but I'd like to introduce yourself, but like why, why, what, what, what has gotten you so interested in the end to end process that you actually like make it part of your business model, which, cause it's not a small feat, like an expertise, like what, <laughs> what's kind of like the, the, the story of like how you got so knowledgeable from end to end, but that's the only guideline. So if you could briefly introduce yourself, yeah, um, that's what I'm curious about though. Yeah. So. I, to answer that question, I'll, I'll kind of jump back and, and walk through my my career and how I got here. So I, as a kid, I was actually one of, the, one of those few who knew exactly what I wanted to do. So when I was about 12, I, I decided that product development was where I wanted to work. I wanted to make inventions and ideas turn into products. And it was just such a fascinating process to to think that somebody could have an idea and eventually it would turn into a product that I could then go buy. And, and that fascination grew into learning CAD, learning drafting and that kind of software. I started working, I got an internship when I was 16 doing design work for a laser company and everything was in house. So they, they actually designed, produced, manufactured all in house. And so it gave me this experience of understanding the entire process and I loved it. It was, it was a great thing. I enjoyed it. I kept on with the company beyond my internship because I loved working with it so much. And that just kind of grew. I, I gained other experience. I, I've worked at larger companies like HP um, and been you know a little bit more siloed, but I, I've spent most of my career working at small and mid-sized companies being a lead designer where there wasn't really a silo department. There wasn't an engineering department that didn't do anything other than in just engineering. It was all a blended kind of team where you had to know everything in order to do it because there weren't enough people, you know, you're working on a small team and you're launching products. And so I really enjoyed that experience, got to try it out and, and learn in different industries. And as I went through that, I, I consulted on the side, I, I did contracting work and I just kept growing my experience. And then I, I did that for the first 10 years of my career. And then I became a partner at a design firm and we started out and, and I was a product expert, but the other partners were marketing and branding and graphic design and these other components that if you just sit in the product and engineering side, even in, even in those small companies, 
they usually don't have the engineer do the graphic design and the and the marketing you do separate even on the small companies so those are areas that you just don't really interact with and so being a partner with these with these guys i was able to learn and see these other components because we would bring on clients where we would offer you know be able to offer this suite of services and so i got to experience not only understanding how do you learn about it how do you how do you sell it how do you communicate about it but also how do you execute what is a marketing plan what is good branding how do you how do you develop websites you know i, I learned how to make wordpress websites and and things like that and so i got to play in these other areas that a lot of people just don't like it's a rare experience to be able to be in that kind of space and so i took that and we we ran that firm for about four years and then kind of disbanded and and I decided I wanted to get back into it because I enjoyed I enjoyed the process and being able to see and walk through that entire process allowed me to see where decisions early on would impact marketing and where there's you know you think about product development as a process and a lot of times you know we think about things super linearly right we go oh well you just do a b c d all the way through z and it's not it's not that cut and dried. It is a lot of little tiny loops and the loop going back, you go to, you may go all the way to Y and then you shoot back to A and that's, is just part of that process. And so being able to see that allowed me to get, get an understanding of what are the decisions you make early on and how they affect a later on decision. How does, you know, doing some ideation sketches and, and designing and choosing features, how does that impact marketing? How does that impact your brand? You know, and, and being able to connect those dots, I loved it. It was, it was a great experience in it and it allows, the reason why I then chose to grow my current firm into doing all of that is because I started to see where a lot of inefficiencies happen because you if you don't talk and have that team communicating between marketing and branding and you know app development web development physical product mechanical electrical if you're not having those conversations you're going to end up doing changes and edits and there's going to be extra cost to the process because you'll get to a certain point and then marketing will look at it and go well, we can't sell that we need you know we need something else like we need something something's got to change here what else can you do and so if you don't have those conversations early and involve them, it, there's, there's those extra costs. And so to cut those out, the easiest way I thought of is to just build one design firm that has all of that in-house so that we can have those conversations. We can have somebody that, that knows about branding involved in early stage design work to say, what what might work with a brand that they're trying to create what are the how are we going to connect with the customers and things like that and so that's that's what's led me to here and it's it's morphed as i've i've done this for years now into the next layer which is the conscious design part of well now how do we take that and make sure that we're being environmentally friendly how do we be socially conscious how do we integrate that in to the process and create better products yeah, you know, I could relate with a lot of that. I think anyone that goes into like a smaller company, you kind of wear a lot of hats and a lot of stops in my career. I was doing marketing, I was designing collateral for 
social ads. I was learning how to run social ads. And it just kind of eventually just kind of getting to the point when you start like specializing at larger companies, you just kind of, you're like surprised to find out that, oh, you don't know anything about marketing. It's like, no, I'm just a designer. And you're just like, yeah, there's so much more to the process of like product. <laughs> But then you realize that you're overworking yourself and <laughs> right. like you're, do you're doing so many jobs. I don't know how you staff a firm here. How do you, how do you staff it so that you could coordinate so many subject matter experts into such a nonlinear process, like you said? Yeah, I, that really comes down to good project management. So we, we have on a typical project, we'll have a couple project managers involved just to make sure that we're we're balancing, spinning all the plates and none of them are being dropped. And, you know, with staffing at this point, you know, I remember starting starting in ads, right, doing social media ads. And I remember when one person could know everything there was about Facebook ads and you could do Google ads and you could do some Twitter ads. And one person could one person could do it all, and now that's not possible. Now each each one each platform's a, a specialty, and so it's really a balance. Building out this team has been a balance of finding experts for areas that absolutely need a dedicated expert, and then also mixing in generalists that are able to look at things and, and yeah, they're, you know, maybe they're a graphic designer, but they also understand marketing. They also understand. So it's, it's having that blend of specialists and generalists that allows us to have the expertise where we do, if we do need to deep dive deep into something and, and we will typically augment, you know, we don't have, I give this example, there's a project, you know, we needed to have a vacuum engineer on. It's not like we do a whole bunch of vacuum engineering on things, but we're also, we find those specialists sometimes, you know, for a specific project. So we we're aware that we need that high specialty at some point. And so we have those resources to bring on as needed. And then we keep as many generalists as possible so that we can always be aware of and, and know enough to know when you need a specialist. I mean, that's, that's really the secret is, being a generalist and running the firm as a, as a, a generalist firm where we, we can really take on pretty much any project, our, our specialty and our, our secret sauce, so to speak, is that I've been doing this a long time. We have a vast network of highly specialized people that I've worked with, my team's worked with diff at different points in, in our careers, and we can draw on those people when we need to, and we know when we need an expert. And that's probably one of the biggest, biggest trip ups that, you know, companies and especially startups and small businesses is, is knowing when you need a specialist because you don't need one right at, at all times. And so there's, if you do it too early, you're going to spend a lot more money on having a specialist involved. If you do it too late, you're going to end up spending a lot of money having them fix whatever you were working on. So that balance of knowing when to bring in a specialist, when you can work with generalists and building that team with good project management is, is the key to how we're able to pull so many different seemingly separate disciplines into one roof. Because once you do and you have them under one roof, you realize that they're all tied in together pretty closely. And it's kind of like you know, using a microscope to look at 
look at fabric, you know, you look at, you know, look at it and you go, oh, well, it's, you know, it's solid, but under a microscope, you realize that there's millions and millions of threads to make it look that way. And we're specialists as a thread. We, we have to, mm. we have to zoom out a little bit and see that we need it all put together and everyone is, is connected in, into this process. There's this book I uh, listened to recently called the power of giving away power and it basically talks about how you accomplish more by it was talk and he uses the example of the the american sigil which is e pluribus unum out of many we become one or something like that and it talked about how it's this interdependence acknowledging that you need marketing you need sales you need engineering i think a lot of the mistake a lot of uh, companies make is that think that oh our department's the one that's going to do this but yeah we need sales and marketing to sell our stuff and it's our oh yeah we need engineering but you know they're just a resource you know but if you just acknowledge the fact hey we need everyone where everyone needs to the team everyone in the team needs to be performing to actually succeed in the in the marketplace it's 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 like a very powerful force multiplier but in order to do that you have to kind of give away power Right. Give everyone, yeah, you have to share the power over. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's a great, great example. And and it really is highlighted when you, if you've ever worked in a giant company. So like I've worked at HP, I've worked in, in huge, I don't even know how many employees they have. And I worked in small companies and, and the reason why, you know, small companies are able to be nimble they're able to change they're able to adjust to a market quickly release a new product in months or you know a year rather than five years is because they're too small to be able to have the bureaucracy level of decision making and it means everyone everyone is able to make decisions there's you know maybe not every single decision is is shared but there's a lot of decision making power down to individual designers or a project manager can make those kinds of decisions that allow change to happen quickly and no one's siloed there is no engineering department that doesn't talk to the design department unless there's a you know a special inter intergroup meeting that they're allowed to communicate through and An that's where intergroup meeting <laughs> Yes, yes. And those and that's how a lot of big companies began and they're they're beginning to break it down those barriers because it's it's one of the reasons why large corporations are so inefficient is because they have once you begin siloing the flow of information stops which means your decision making ability even if you even if you were to just you know give the decision making power that's like one level but if you aren't receiving the information from the other departments, then your decision is in a bubble. Like, yeah, you may, you may be able to fa make a faster decision inside your bubble, but you're still making a decision in a bubble. Whereas if you're communicating between different departments, you're understanding that whole process and you're able to have those conversations, then the decisions made are always different. I mean, it's it, decision-making in a bubble is never good. <laughs> And, and always will end up in being a, a more inefficient way of, of doing business. I heard like this saying, so I, I'd like to pivot towards 
yeah like obviously project management i mean not obviously because they're like a lot of project management isn't like obvious like it's very new but yeah product like there's the project management and like kind of realizing the interconnectedness of all these disciplines helps i think a culture seems to be the main driving factor for making that thing making it good to great like a, an organization and i remember i'm probably butchering it but i remember hearing this video game designer quote where it's like a good designer can anticipate when the this design's going to break and then they could like allocate for that in future iterations so it's like a good designer can think ahead to the implications of their decisions. And that sounds very similar to kind of the topic of your book, Conscious Design, which was released as of this recording, it was released October 18th, 2021. So it's been out for a few months. So we'll, we'll coordinate to make sure that people could find it. Like do, so, I mean, it sounds like Conscious Design is like part of the culture at your firm. Could you kind of just break down what you're trying to accomplish with that book and, and the message behind it? Like what you trying to teach the world? Yeah, so conscious design really is what I think the next next level from human-centered design should be and, and taking human-centered design and design thinking and asking the basically asking the question, those are great, but how do we approach design now? How do we how do we really make impactful products that are positive impacts, we reduce the negative impacts of a product. We we want to have products like that. More and more startups are, are coming out that are focused on that. And the the goal of the book is to help open people's eyes and, and be a tool where people can read this and, and hopefully glean some ideas. You know, we share different companies that are doing this. They are thinking about social responsibility. They're thinking about, you know, the environmental impact they're thinking about the impact of their product on their employees they're thinking about the product impact of their brand on their employees on their neighborhoods on their communities and conscious design it, we we built it around four pillars we built around observation impact connection and inclusion and really it's we start with observation because if you're not aware of it you can't do anything about it and that's kind of one of the things that I have realized over my career is that design as a whole is a little bit in a bubble and not really aware or not necessarily even allowed to because of time constraints and, and budget constraints on what, what you can do. As designers, we're not thinking always about what is the life cycle of my product? What, what happens to the product when it's done? What, what's the end of life for it? How, how does the manufacturing method I selected impact anything at all? I mean, really, we yeah. don't like that's, that's not really the conversation that happened. It is starting to be right. And there's definitely companies that are, there's many great examples, but it's not a huge shift. Like we're not, we're not in the majority of thinking that way. And so the idea of the book is to, to lay this out and say, okay, well, here's, Here's areas that we need to be thinking about. Here's how we can go about creating and designing a product and the brand and, and really tying together. You can't have a, 
you know, really great brand that's all for, you know, eco-friendly and things like that, and then have an okay product. You have to match. They need to be thought about together. And so when you're, you know, especially starting a new company, but even if you're an existing one and you're like, I want to be, I want to be more green. I want to be more environmentally friendly. I want to be socially responsible. I want all these things. Then you still need to go through this process of, well, what does my brand say? What is, and so the term we, we use is uh, legacy branding. And it's really introducing the idea of instead of thinking about, you know, your brand in the short term, you know, which you need to, you need to think about the here and now, because we're, we're, we're all here now, but also thinking about long-term, what, what, what are people going to think about the brand in five years, 10 years, 20 years, even, even further. And, and starting to have that conversation of, well, let's stop just looking at the short term. And that's how a lot of product design is, is well, what's the short term? Okay, well, we're going to get out a million units and this is going to be fine. And, and we're looking at the next five years, maybe. And we're not really thinking about, well, yeah, but when we start producing a hundred million of these, what, what does that look like? Right? What, what happens when we've made a hundred million fidget spinners? What, what, what happens then? And starting to basically walk through that conversation well how do you start to parse that out and and begin to think about long term what are the impacts are they positive are they negative are they neutral you know and what is we use the word legacy is what are you going to be remembered for so even even just asking that question like what is your great grandkids generation going to think about your brand so what are they going to think about what what is it going to be you know, at the, at the very worst, I would say they should be thinking nothing because you didn't do anything bad. <laughs> at the very best, you know, you should be, have been making some positive impact. And we're not, we don't think that kind of long-term, you know, most businesses right now. And we don't think about that long-term in products. And that's part of it. You're going to, if you're going to be this eco-friendly, uh, socially conscious, really aware brand, you have to be thinking about those things, not just the materials and, and, you know, not to put any, any hide away the, the benefit of materials, which are absolutely important, but they're just a component. And so that's conscious design is saying, well, that's great. Your material is, is eco-friendly. Great. Well, that's, that's a great start. Well, what about your supply chain? What about the transportation of those materials? What about how did we mine it? How do we ore it? You know, what, how, how, do we, how do we harvest that material to use? And, and really thinking about all of those impacts because we, we, I give the example of you know, just a, an average number two pencil from school. It comes, it comes from, I think, four different countries in order for them to make a pencil. And you think about that, you know, it, it's, you know, it, it really costs pennies to make. You buy it for, you know, for a few dollars for a pack of 10 of them. And it's come from multiple countries and its journey has been months of time to get to you. And that's just a pencil, right? And it, it by itself, a pencil has a huge amount of impact across the world that nobody's really, we don't really think about when we design, like when somebody created the pencil, they didn't go, well, what countries am I going to impact? What is the transportation that's going to be used for all of this? You know, nobody did that kind of life cycle analysis on 
a pencil and all those materials. And we kept not doing that as we got bigger and designed more complicated products. And so what my goal is to have people start thinking about that. Well, what are all the impacts? Where does everything come from? And really thinking about that supply chain, which from everything getting shut down in 2020 with the pandemic, people started to realize how important supply chain is. As soon as everybody ran out of toilet paper, I, I guess that was the click <laughs> that made everybody start thinking about it. But it's always been there and those impacts have always been possible. And so starting to think about and have those conversations, well, what's, what is the supply chain of your product and how, how is it impacting things and how can you improve it? Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think being consciously aware of everything end to end of your products a lot. I I think we talked about it before we recorded that you, you, in your book, you provide examples of companies that are, that are doing this today. I think that maybe be easier to conceptualize if you, there was like a practical example. What do you think is like the best example of a consciously designed value chain? And I think like Mm. a value chain, like encapsulates kind of the whole from product to marketing, however, how you deliver it to the customer is basically what you're covering. Yeah. Like what, yeah. Like what's, what's a company doing it pretty well right now? Well, there's a few and one, one of the examples that I, that I put into the book, Lafia and they're a beauty product. They make soaps and things like that. And they've gone through and not only have they sourced environmentally friendly materials, but they're also gone through and made sure that, you know, they're fair trade and there's no, there's no slave labor being used in the process and things like that. And so they've done a really good job of not only doing, but also sharing what they've done. And I use them as an example because they're, they're, they've have, have a very open supply chain. They're very public about it. There's not, you know, it's not hidden where, where everything comes from. And, and that's one of the key things that a lot of companies are starting to realize and starting to share is being more open about where do they source their products? Where does they source? And, and, you know, I feel like it used to be a little bit more, you kind of hid where you got things from because you didn't want anybody to know that you weren't being made in the US or, you know, you didn't want that kind of, because people weren't, weren't really positive towards it. And now everything's so much more global. There's, there's not really, it's not really a secret that we manufacture things everywhere. And so there's companies like Lafayette that are coming out and saying, yeah, we, we don't make it here in the US. In fact, we're, we're very happy. We're not, we're, we're supporting this economy over here doing this. And here's our supply chain and here's how we source. And here's, here's the things that we've done to make sure there's a third party check, you know, validating that we're not just making it up. And so that's where there's a lot more, you know, the brands that are really trying to do this, they're, they're starting to look at, we need to make this public. We need to make this third party verified and things like that. And so now there's more and more organizations who are able to say, yeah, this is a certified fair trade, or this is certified ethical labor, or this is, you know, ethical, how they do it for growing. So you like growing food, but also growing plants, trees, you know, different, whatever crop we're using. And so those are, those are things that are allowing consumers to 
also believe it because you can always just say that something is there, but third party verification is where, is where that kind of trust building of saying, yeah, these people are actually, you know, using fair trade, fair labor, labor, and they're not introducing a bunch of things that they're, <laughs> they're not supposed to be. Yeah. I think, uh, a big, a big part of improving supply change, which, so I was, I was chatting with the director of product at open door, but we're just chatting about how, how like difficult it was to create products and like value chains that disrupt like very uh, traditional mm. supply chains. Like for example, home buying several different specialties and professionals that come together to facilitate a transaction on a piece of real estate. Like super amorphous, complex. And uh, he had a really good read about it where he talked about how he's like, well, you know, Web 2.0 was always just about like getting information. And he's like, I don't want to like say that like it's easier problems to solve like social media and uh, all that <laughs> stuff. But it's like you're you're just delivering content information and that's not really like addressing like a value chain he's, and he's like now the where the innovation is is where how can you how can you uh, disrupt like something that's like high touch value chain like like uh, mm. buying a house and and uh you know, he was talking about a lot of different ways that they were trying to design around the non-digital touch points, because I think there's a lot to, you know, right. I think everyone's trying to solve things with screens, right? Right, and, there's uh, an app for it. Yeah, there's an app for it. <laughs> well, that's that's actually something that we, we touch on in the book is talking about, you know, we, we I think that the, the way forward, you know, the idea that we're, you know, a zero impact is, is good, but what's better is regenerative and kind of what you're talking about, you know, it's, it's not, it's not for a lack of ideas and po possibilities. There's ways to do it. And I think there's, there's a lot that can be done to, to shift this and even shift the conversation from, well, let's just, instead of let's not do bad things, it should be, how do we do things that improve what we have? improve what we're doing and make a positive impact you know it's neutral is i think should be the minimum right <laughs> that should be that should be the worst that we're aiming for is is zero but let's really have that conversation so it's, it's great to hear that there's other you know companies that are thinking of this of how do we how do we incentivize the system that we're we're putting into place to to reward actually improving things like you know, just let's you know go beyond just don't harm things. Let's make, let's make it better. And, and and neutral doesn't mean like zero emissions. It's like it's what you're. It, it means like what 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 are you doing to offset the negative stuff that you have to do in order to stay in business. So for example, I mean I'm gonna dock myself points for using Apple as an example, but like I have been recently in my last two iPhones, I've used like their Apple Card installments where. You can just buy it directly through the Apple store and it's like easier. It's a better experience than going to like a T-Mobile store and like trading in your phone. You could just buy the phone and then it'll handle the trade-in. And how they handle the trade-in is it's like a completely intentionally designed system where they'll give you like a box where you could like repackage your old phone and send it back to them. And obviously it costs money to ship things. 
but they're recycling and repurposing like all their technology and they could have just been like okay here's a shipping label like throw it in a box and send it back to us it's like no no, no they made the, they like the, designed the box for the trade-in with care with like a little sleeve that you could like slip it in and then you like pull the handles down and, and this is audio only so i just imagine that there's like little like cardboard handles like <laughs> saran wrapping your the, the your old phone and then you just put up the box and you send it and you just drop it off the ups store and then that the, the trade-in's handled but it's like it, they've intentionally designed and invested in this process of the trade-in um so that they can offset their production and I think that's just a, that's, that's probably a really, that, that got me thinking, I'm like, oh, well, how do you like, yeah, like what, what do you do a lot, do companies plan, like what, especially if you're making hardware, like what happens to this hardware it's, once it's done being used? I mean, know? the, the honest truth is that most of the time it's not part of your design brief. Mm. When you're, when you're starting out and you're designing a new product, most most companies don't even ask the question unless there unless there's some law some really hazardous material that we know is going to be needs to be dealt with it's not end of life just is is not a focus in design design is especially at large companies but even startups are still there there's such a high focus on let's create a new thing and less about, well, what happens when you're, when nobody wants to use your product anymore? Cause people don't, it, it's, I feel like it's sometimes connected with, you know, like losing a customer, you know, maybe they don't want to use the product anymore. And, and that nobody really thinks about, well, what happens when somebody doesn't want to use your product anymore? What happens if your when your product stops working? Because that's not, it's not the positive front end. It's not the rosy numbers we all like like to look at. And so those conversations, even you know, on a branding level, I've talked to companies and and helped you know with their customer experience. And we've asked the question: Well, what what's the customer experience when they stop being your customer? And usually the answer is well, I don't know. They just stop being our customer, and, and then that's. And that's just not being thought about. So the, this, we we have everything has a life cycle. Your customer is not necessarily going to be your customer for life, but even if even if they are for life, at some point they will die, and they will stop being a customer. And so no, but nobody thinks about that. Nobody's having that conversation. Your product will stop working at some point. I don't, it doesn't matter how good it is. You know, <laughs> there's still Model Ts at work, but based on the number that were made and the number that still work percentage wise it's not a percentage we would ever consider as operating we would say zero zero we're, we're still operating and so that conversation just isn't isn't a focus it's not put up front and that's that's one of the things that we talk about with conscious design is that conversation needs to happen up front there, there isn't a way around it. It has to happen up front because if you don't, you're going to end up designing something. And I've seen it happen before. You get through the design process and then somebody goes, oh, but we want it to be recyclable. And that basically means you get to redesign it. Like that's, that's the kind of thing that happens. And so that's, 
And because at that point you have that conversation when somebody says that, whether it's, you know, marketing pointing out that people want recyclable products because nobody talked to marketing before they went through the process, you know, it then becomes, well, do we want to spend 50% more on R and D to get the product out? And most of the time is, well, no, we've used up our budget. Like we didn't, we didn't budget an extra 50 or hundred percent of our time and effort to be able to do this. Like this was our one shot. And especially in startups where, you know, they might be working off of funding. They don't want to go ask for more funding because they didn't ask a question that makes them look bad. So they just punch forward. And so those conversations are not happening as much as they should. And that's one of the goals with the book and the podcast I run and, and my design firm is to help guide people through that and capture kind of capture people early and companies early and say, Okay, let's have this conversation about what is the impact of your product? What is the end of life? Do you want it to turn into something else? Do you want to, there's, there's some great examples. I, I gave a few where packaging is designed to like, oh, I forget. I think it's, I think it's Samsung yeah. because TV boxes are huge, right? I mean, you get one of those 60 inch flat screens, they're huge. And they, they actually had, I don't know if it went into production or if it was a concept but because it's pretty good thick cardboard, they actually like line, traced out on there. You could cut out the box into a shape and it would turn into like a little end table or like a little chair for a kid. And it was like, yeah, that may not last for a really long time, but it's still more enjoyable. Like me as a consumer be like, I can make a little chair for my kid. That's cool. Like a little end table. Yeah, it's not going to, obviously it's cardboard. It's not going to be you know, top of the line product right there, but it's still just even thinking about what can you do with the waste? Because especially packaging, we all know packaging is absolutely pointless after you purchase, after you set up the product. You're not, right? There's no, yeah. nothing to do with it after. It's, it's, its lifespan is extremely short. And I think that's why a lot of people focus so much on it. And it is one area where people people are having those conversations and thinking, well, how do I make my packaging more green? Because it's a super obvious, it's yeah. only going to last for a few months and then someone's going to buy it off a shelf and then pull the product out and it's, it's garbage now. So that's like the easy kind of low hanging fruit, but the deeper conversation of, well, yeah, my TV is not going to last for a hundred years. It's It's going to stop working at some point and thinking about, what you do with that is is it can be a daunting conversation too and it's it's a little bit scary to to have to think about that because that's a whole other step and a whole other layer and not everyone sees or knows that there's a benefit to it and that's part of the the education process is that we go through with our clients is explaining well yeah you have it's going to be an extra step, but you're going to end up with a product that, you know, maybe you can have it shipped back to you and you, we can recoup components. Maybe there's, you know, there's, there's still value. Like it's a tangible object. It's not worth $0 when, when it, even if it stops working. So how do we, how do we do that? And how do we create a better customer experience? Because if your customer ends up with having to deal with trash that requires special recycling to be dealt with there, 
the first person to come out with a product that doesn't require that, that's who they're going to buy their second TV from, right? Their, their, their second whatever is going to be the one that don't have to do something special to get rid of it. They don't want to do something special. They just want to have a product that works. And so that's some of the conversation that we, we have is, is helping to identify what, what is that end of life. And, and hopefully more and more people will have that conversation and we can start solving for that more than we do now. You know, actually, you just reminded me there's this agency. I saw this case study, uh, this one product agency that uh, they were, this design agency was acquired by Pattern like a year ago or something like that. But they showed it really cool. They worked with Allbirds mm. and they helped design the com compostable shoe packaging that was yeah, like yeah. made out of the same material as the shoes. And so, like, the packaging, you could just, and it actually had like instructions on the box and like, plant the package or like you could bury the package and then the package will just like compost and fall apart. Right. And like, yeah, it's like Alberts is a great, another great example of like a company that's investing in like end of life cycle use of just their packaging for one thing. And, you know, and honestly, I think like COVID, yeah, you're right. COVID has really shown us that like supply chain's a problem and we should start thinking about end of life cycle because like the chip shortage for cars is a great example right. of like we need to you, like you still can't get, get a ps5 so uh-huh um, right? i had to wait i had to wait two months which is i consider myself very lucky to just get the one this one like kia wanted i had to wait for it to like get there and i had to like put a deposit down like sight unseen that i was going to commit to buying it and yeah it's like car companies now have to like figure out like okay we need to figure out how we can recoup these components because usually they're still intact by the time the person's done using them, like the, the, the computer mm -hmm. chips usually were like working or can be recovered because like, just from like a humanities perspective, like we have to think about like the, the like, I mean, I know that, that it seems like there's infinite like resources, but like, yeah, <laughs> like spoiler, uh, there isn't, there isn't like, you know, there's a, there's a finite amount of resources and we end we we probably have to start recycling our products now and like make that best practice in manufacturing so that cars always have computer chips because they're going to need more and more computer chips and software to function the more like i mean the, the problem is is that it's like yeah it's it's like compounding how much software is being put into our day-to-day -day like objects that we need to consider like how do we re how do we recover those and and yeah i don't know i mean I, I think maybe i don't know maybe tesla's doing it but yeah like that's that's the big that's the existential problem isn't it yeah it's actually i haven't heard of any recovery for the chips those are now i'm gonna have to look now and see and see if there I'm is curious. yeah i'm well i <clears throat> sometimes like i'll just you know, say something. I'm like, ah, oh, amused. Oh. It's like when you read a good like book, like a true story, and you're like, oh, this would make for a great movie. And then they make a movie about it, and you're like, <laughs> I, I put it in the universe. Like, um, right. that's how I hope. I hope that happens with cars, where they realize like, oh, all 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 that needs to happen is the supply chain needs to be disrupted, and then we can't sell cars. Huh? Okay. Hey, Ian, we are coming up on time. I definitely want to respect your time. And so I just want to ask you like one more question, but just before I say that, this has been an amazing, really interesting conversation. 
it's really getting me thinking about like, well, what's the end of the life cycle? When, what, what happens when people want to stop using my products I'm working on? Um, it's some, right. it is, is really something to think about. And, you know, I, I recommend anyone that like is more interested in this topic to look at his book, because obviously we just got a taste of it. But Ian, what do you think needs to be said that hasn't been said so far? I, I think one of the, one of the big things, I, I, I talk a little bit about, about it in the book, but one of the big things is it can be really, it can be really daunting and scary to go you know, for, especially for a really complex product to suddenly change over, especially if you're producing it already to change it over completely and like begin swapping out a whole, every single material and do a complete about face. And one of the things that I help companies with is figuring out, well, how do we, how do we break it down? Cause it, it's, it'll feel like trying to eat an elephant in one bite. It's just not not something that can always make sense. So thinking about how do you strategically and create a roadmap to convert. And I know, I know you used an Apple example earlier, but I'll have to use it here because they, one of the things they did was about 10 years ago, they, they set a goal for how eco-friendly and, and the recyclability and things like that. And at the time, everyone was like, you're not going to do it. And it took them 10 years, but they did it. And that's, I use that example because people are like, well, you have to do it all at once. And, and the answer isn't you have to do it all at once. The answer is you need to start working towards it because if everybody just started working towards it, we'd all arrive there and we'd arrive there a lot faster than waiting for everything to be perfectly aligned to change everything all at once, which is extremely stressful in the product world you're talking about tooling, you're talking about supply chains, you know, these are not things that you built in a day. These are not things you change in a day. And, you know, if Apple's going to take 10 years to get there and, and I, you know, you could argue that they could do it faster, but there's also reality of things do take time. You can't, if you actually were to look through the supply chain of Apple, you realize how deep it goes and you can't just change that. Mm -hmm. in a couple of months it's not possible so realizing that it's not a all or nothing right this second it is a what do you want the goal to be do you want to become more eco-friendly do you want do you want that to be your goal then great well then we're not going to arrive there tomorrow but let's start taking a step in that direction and figuring out how do we make that step and that's that's one of the things i I try to remind people as much as possible that taking a step is more important than arriving there right now. We will get there. Let's start. Well, and if you look at any successful anything, it's 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 compound interest. <laughs> exactly. Know? It's always compound interest. It's never it's always the the 10 year overnight success analogy, which is actually fits the Apple example very well. And I always laugh when people say like, this could be done faster. And I'm like, what precedent are you looking at? Have you done it before faster? How do you, <laughs> right. how, how are you supposed like, how, like what like perspective do you have? Do you know something I don't that could be done faster? Or are you just saying stuff like it's I, right is this a wish list or do you know the secret and you should share it <laughs> yeah like stop being so selfish if you know please tell us like how well, what what insight or data do you have that could be done faster 
and I love how people are just like, oh, Apple's so big, they could do whatever they want so fast. And I'm like, no, like they probably like, yeah, if you look at their cost structure and their supply chain and stuff, it's like, oh my gosh, like most, most like one product, like usually most success, a lot, lot of successful products, usually it, there's like a five or 10 year window before it really starts providing value. I saw this really great graph where it showed all these companies in the last 30 years that like it, their growth trajectory. And I, I actually need, I, I need to look at it. Cause I'm just like, this is crazy, crazy perspective on like how things actually work in the real world. So there's, yeah. Okay. So 96% of value is created after year 10. And it's like this, this <laughs> diagram of like Tesla, Facebook, Shopify, Airbnb, Google, Amazon, um, like Google and Amazon didn't stop, start being big until like five years ago. Right. Like well, they've, it's, it's they've the, been in business you know, for 30 years. It's, it's when people talk about like hockey stick growth. Yeah. What they what they ignore is that it took five ten years to get to that point, and, and then it and then it skyrockets, and uh -huh. and that's where things take off. Yeah, like if Tesla didn't become the Tesla we know today until fifteen years in business, fifteen years, like, right? That's the precedent. This takes time, <laughs> like. To actually right. develop, yeah, like to actually hit critical mass and everyone's just like, oh, we'll do it like TurboTax. I'm like, TurboTax has 70 designers. Like, it, well, like we're going to, we can, we can step back with that too. They're, they're part of a larger company and yeah. it's been a while. <laughs> like, yeah. They're, they're, oh, you know, their overnight did, success how, is not. Been, TurboTax has been around since you've been in elementary school. Like, think about it, you know, it's like, <laughs> they've been, they, and everyone's like, oh, just do like TurboTax. I love TurboTax. Like, <laughs> this is a digital product design qualm, I guess. But our, yeah, or the, there's, there's no precedent that anything worthwhile, like, like AirPods, five-year R&D cycle, Amazon Alexa, four-year, five-year R&D cycle before it hit the market. Like, it's just. I mean, use the smartphone. We, we had smart palm tablets little you know you remember palm palm assistance oh yeah, yeah. Those, so those existed for years years uh -huh. before the smartphone they were not popular they did not hit but without no. them yeah the iphone would never have existed have it, you ever it, seen there's that movie in some industrial magic it was like it's a company about this like internal company in the 80s when like scully or scully was the ceo of apple and he made this like internal company. I think it's like a Showtime documentary and it talks about the team that actually they had designs for like what was the smartphone and they were trying to do it back mm -hmm. then. And Tony Fidel was on, was an intern. That's great. I haven't seen that. Dude, yeah, yeah, I'll send you the link and uh, I forgot the name of it. It's like dark, Man. <laughs> but it's yeah. Like the Tony Fidel was thinking about the iPhone for decades before well it's, the yeah i mean I, I we can we can even go back to like science fiction right yeah I mean, science fiction starts and then slowly like what was it star trek and tricorder right now 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 we have it but there nobody was nobody was trying to invent that at the time right nobody was trying to invent a little 
a little badge you could click and talk to somebody a thousand miles away. Now we have one in our pocket at all times. <laughs> I, I can have a cell service on my on my smartwatch, on my wrist, anywhere I want, and connect it to my headphone. And I can I can call. I can call you and talk to you off of a smartwatch. And uh -huh. that's that's where we're at. But it's nobody it's, would have watched it and been like, yeah, it's gonna happen. <laughs> it's way it's way better than science fiction. Like I remember. I mean, yeah, this is not wrapping up an episode. So I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best guys. But there's Johnny Quest, who is, is like this old cartoon. I watched like on Cartoon Network in like early morning before I went to school. And he had this cool watch that had a flashlight on it. And I thought that was so cool. <laughs> like, yes. and, and now I'm like, everything's better. Like technology is so much better after like years of R&D that like the Mission Impossible movies their gadgets are like using iPads. Like they didn't even make a prop. They just used real, like the technology was just so good that they didn't have to like make fancy props for. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's an app for it now. That's... Yeah. So oh. yeah, yeah, no, this is, Ian, this has been a really fun way to wrap up an episode. I totally agree with you. I mean, if you really care about how products, you know, impact the world, you got to be in it for the long haul. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you, you, you definitely are someone that is in it for the love of the game. So I, I don't have any worries about you doing great stuff. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's been, I've enjoyed the, the conversation the entire time. It's been it's great. And uh, yeah, I love our wrap up. Yeah, that was a good wrap up. That's probably one of the best wrap ups, in my opinion. And I've done almost 100 episodes. So like, congratulations. So oh, well, awesome. I'm happy to do it. Well, thanks for coming on the show. You have a good one, Ian. You too. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Way of Product Design. One quick favor. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your network, your friends, and hit that subscribe button on the show wherever you're listening to it. Thanks again for listening to the show. And I'm really excited to bring more awesome interviews and content your way. So keep listening. You won't be disappointed.